We are in 1 Samuel. We're going to continue on in our series. We're in chapter 24, so uh, let's, let's pray, while, uh, and you guys can open up your Bibles to that. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that uh, you give us examples of how to live and how to pray. And we pray, God, that uh, you would speak to us through your spirit, through your word, and through others. I pray that you would bless our fellowship time afterwards, that you would help us to become a closer-knit community. Uh, family that is together in, in spiritual things and um, seeking to impact your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. So in this chapter, chapter 24, and in the next few subsequent chapters, we're going to witness that David practiced restraint, that he practiced waiting, that he practiced holding himself back. And you recall back in chapter 23, that Saul was pulled away from pursuing David right at the last minute. David was going to be caught by Saul, and then right then, one of his soldiers told him that, oh, the Philistines are attacking, you've got to turn around. So now we're back in chapter 24, and you're going to notice that there is no recap of that battle. There's no recap telling us what happened there. It just goes straight right back into the story of David, right in Gedi, because the author's just not concerned with that thing. It's not important to him. He just goes straight back into the story. So here we are, verse 1. When Saul returned from the following Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. And so En Gedi is a place, it has a, it's a ton of fresh water springs, and even though it looks like a really dry desert and the Dead Sea is just on the other side, and you're like, oh, how can they survive there? There's, there's a bunch of fresh water springs there, and there's, a, there's a plen, plenty of caves, plenty of places for him to hide as well. Verse 2, Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. Now when we think of caves, we kind of think of just these kind of small open spaces where you kind of just go in and, and then you can't go any further. But, but there are caves here that you can actually get lost in. And some of these caves, they're really quite large. They can fit a lot of people, some of us, all of us in there, they, we can fit in there. The sanctuary can fit in there. And then some of these caves branch into other caves. So you can have like a living room and kitchen and all this other stuff in there. And you can have your own private cave away from everyone else. And so when we read about Saul into this cave, it's not like the 600 guys are, oh, he's coming. Right? It's not like they're like hiding back and cramming in the cave like, shh, be quiet, don't breathe. Right, and and so it's it's not like he's just like ten feet in front of them. They, they they have a lot of space, a lot of room in these caves. Verse four, and the men of David said to him, "Here is the day of which the Lord said to you: Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you." Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. You notice that David faced a little test here. Saul entered the cave to to relieve himself and also to rest. And so 3,000 men that Saul chose, they, they were outside, they were giving the king privacy as he did his business. And while, while David was in the innermost of the part of the cave, so kind of rude that he's doing this to their entrance. Anyway, in verse 4, the men uh, of David said, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you, you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. 
Well, that quote there, you, we don't really find it anywhere in Scripture. It's just here. But this is how David's men kind of interpreted what, what David received from God, what, what God said to David. And his men knew he was going to be king, but, but that quote, that exact quote isn't found anywhere. It's their interpretation. His guys get pretty excited, right? They get pretty jazzed to see that, that, hey, man, Saul is just lying there for the kill, right? All his guys are, man, kill him. He's right there. And so David, David, this is, this is so obvious that, that God put this guy right in front of you to kill him so you can take the throne. It's so obvious. You don't have to think about this. You don't have to pray about this. The Lord's will is clear. It's so clear. He's right there. He's giving you this opportunity. You have to, you have to seize it. You have to take it into your own hands. David, aren't you tired of hiding and running? Aren't you tired of our wives and our kids living like this as, as fugitives? Aren't you tired of all this? And God is just so good. God is so good to, to, to give this guy to you right here that, that you can just kill him and then just let the reign of David begin. Let the reign of King David begin. We don't have to deal with this guy anymore. So David heads down to Saul and he cuts off a corner of Saul's robe. And apparently Saul was taking a nap and, and David got down to, to where he was taking this siesta and, and he got close enough to just cut off a chunk of the corner of his robe and more than likely, Saul took this robe off before this nap, so it's off of him. But, but it's pretty daring nonetheless, right, whether he's wearing it or not. And then David's conscience spoke to him. David's heart spoke to him. And by cutting off a corner of Saul's robe, it, it was this symbolic assault on, on Saul himself. And, and David just wasn't good with that. He wasn't cool with that. And he said in verse 6, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. See, David still recognized Saul as sacred, that Saul should be revered. That even though God rejected Saul as king, Saul was still the one first designated as Israel's first anointed king. So David felt that God had to be the one to take him out, not him. And it was not going to be David's will and vengeance that were going to take Saul out. In David's eyes, Saul was untouchable. And he felt that it was wrong to act against the Lord's anointed. So much so that in verse 7, it just really doesn't do David's actions justice here. Verse 7 says that David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. Now the word persuaded here, it means to divide, to cleave, to, to cut to part. And what this is telling us is that David had to really throw down with his guys. That he, he got in a serious, serious kind of word thrashing with them. Right? That he didn't allow them to touch Saul. He just tore them apart with his words. It's actually the same Hebrew word that's used in Judges chapter 14, verse 6. Do you remember that story, Samson? Samson, where we're told about how he tore apart a young lion that attacked him. It's the same verb. And so David tore them up, or in these parts, he tore them up. And so David's words, they ripped, ripped them apart. They ripped them apart, and he didn't allow Saul to, to touch them. And so David used some hostile, he used some harsh language on his men to, to keep them from killing Saul. So what's the issue here? Well, let's take a look at this from a couple points of view. One from the view of David and then the other from the view of his men. His men's view is, is that this is a golden opportunity from God. It is so obvious. 
there's no question. How obvious can it be that you're supposed to kill this guy? Right? You, you don't have to even pray about this. This is so obvious. And his guys are telling him, David, just, he's right there. Right now. All you have to do is take his life. You can take the throne. He's been doing this for so long. He's been trying to kill you. Just kill him. But David, he has this different take on this. He doesn't see it the same way, which totally confuses his guys. They're like, we don't understand. It is so apparently obvious what you should do. What are you doing? So, do you see the issue here? Is this really God's providence? Or is this really temptation? Is this really an opportunity given by God? Or is this just a stumbling block? Is this thing that is in front of us God's gift? Or is it Satan's trap? Are we to seize the day? Or are we to wait for the future? So, which is it? And sometimes it's hard for us to navigate these questions, right? How, how, how do we know? How do we know which one it is? When it seems so obvious, it doesn't seem like anything's wrong with that decision. How do we know? See, David had this promise to be king, right? He, we, we know that. Remember in 1 Samuel chapter 16, Samuel anoints him with oil after all those brothers and stuff. He's like, oh, the youngest one. And Tim, he's anointed to be king. Uh, and chapter 20 and 23, Jonathan, the prince, the heir to the throne, he recognizes that, that Saul is going to be king. So, so David had this promise that he was going to be king. So, so what we have here is the what. We know what is going to happen. We know what is eventually going to happen. But what we don't know is the how. We don't know how that's going to come about. And the how is totally different from the what, isn't it? We have this result from God that that God has given David, and we know the what. And actually, we kind of know what for us as well, right? We kind of know what we have to do to a large extent in terms of glorifying, honoring God. And we have all these commandments and things like we shouldn't kill, we shouldn't steal. We have all this what, and we have all these different things. But by what ways and means and opportunities and channels are we supposed to do those things? How is the what going to come about? And and that's the hard hard part. Oftentimes, the, the what is so much easier to figure out than the how, isn't it? And from David's point of view, what, we, what he seems to be driving home is that a servant of God waits for God's will, waits for God's ways, and waits for God's timing. And that's hard to know. It's really difficult to know whether an opportunity is given to us to, to jump on it or whether it's just a temptation. And was Saul lying there totally vulnerable for David to take his life and and to end all his troubles with Saul, Uh, was that God's will? Was that God's providence? Or or was that temptation? And how do we know whether to seize that opportunity that seems so right, it seems so right that it seems wrong to pass up, or whether it's a sin that's to be avoided? So how we need to pray for discernment. How we need to pray for the wisdom of God. And yes, God promised David a kingdom. But that kingdom is to come God's way and not David's way. And you notice how David doesn't take God's promise and and just seize it, bringing it about in an ungodly way. 
See, what, what God promises must come about in His way, in His timing, in a way that pleases Him. And so David chooses not to assassinate Saul. Because that doesn't seem like the way to fulfill God's promise. Now let's take a look at this in New Testament terms. But before we do that, we kind of have to lay a foundation by looking at the Psalms. Psalms chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. And we'll just take a look at this for some background. Psalms chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. And here God is speaking to the Messianic King. Verse 8. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, that was the will for the Messiah. That's the Father's will for His Holy Son, Jesus, and His life. Now, you check this out in Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Again, the devil took Him to a very high mountain and showed Him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And He said to them, All these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship Me. See, the devil is telling Jesus that he can have it all right now. You can have it now. So what do we have here? In Psalm chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, we, we have the what. God is telling the Messianic King, Jesus, this is what. This is what is promised to you and, and what you are going to receive. But how? That was not revealed exactly. It actually was, but but not in this timing. Well, the devil tempted Jesus in Matthew 4 by offering it to Jesus now. Immediately. Right now. Why wait? You can have it all right now. And you already know what was promised to you. Just take it. Just, just act on it. It's already yours. But was that the will of God or was that temptation? And you see, this is something that we deal with as well. And there's this temptation to cut corners. There's this temptation to kind of take shortcuts. And the Gospel of Matthew clearly shows us that Jesus didn't receive the Psalm 2 promises by submitting to Satan and accepting it now. Rather, Jesus received God's promises by the disgrace, the suffering, the humiliation, the shame of the cross. That's how it was supposed to happen. That's the how. And you see how Jesus was enticed to cut corners with Satan's temptation. Get it now. Just fall down here, worship me, and, and it's all yours. And to get what was promised to him right now without waiting, without the humiliation, without the suffering, without the shame, without the disgrace of the cross. But then that would damn all of us. So you see the temptation David faced. And, and in like principle, the temptation that we face. How similar it is for us when we have all these things confronting us in our life and how, how we're just tempted to cut corners in our own life. And as Christians, we, we're just often we're tempted to cut corners because, let's face it, the Christian life is, is hard. It's challenging. It's not like an easy thing. You know, we're always looking for the most effective, the most proficient, efficient, proven ways to live the Christian life, aren't we? We, we want to know how to best live the Christian life with, with what worked for others. And, and so we look for patterns and we look for formulas and we look for the hottest new thing and, and we look for how, how people broke through their challenges and, and we want it. 
We want it, whatever that it is. We want it. We want that it that gives us this leg up on, on how to live the Christian life because we're so tired uh, of being frustrated and, and failing and being in our mess and, and being pulled back down into our sin with the same stuff that, that pulls us down it over and over again and these trials and tribulations that we just can't shake in our life. How do we get rid of all that stuff? And we often have these temptations. We have these temptations to cut corners so, so that when someone claims to have a solution, we get really excited. We, we want to grasp onto that and how we can live a better Christian life. And we jump all over and people say, oh, we found it. We've discovered how to do this. We have the key to living a Christian life. This is how we have revival. This is how you have revival. This is how you should pray. This is how you can bring the Holy Spirit to a city near you. This is how we can get results in our spiritual life. We've figured it out. We've never done it this way before, but we've figured it out. We've discovered some true insights to Christianity, and we've discovered true Christianity. Whatever it is, it's a way to cut corners, to get around the relentless, to get around this time-consuming, this energy-consuming, this life-consuming, this educational, instructive, enlightening, this this learning, God-intended process called holiness. And how often we look to get out of our our despairing, our frustrating, our trying circumstances when, when it's precisely those terrible circumstances that are moving us towards holiness as we endure through these difficult times. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1-13. through 13. I just want to read it to you because I can't do it any more clearly than this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the the discipline of the Lord, nor be wary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and are not sons. Besides this... We have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and, lo- and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. So we find ourselves tempted to find something, to to find the it, to find the secret, so we don't have to go through all of 
that. Endure all of that to get immediate results. You know, if I could only have solutions to all of my problems right now, if I could just get my answers now, if I just pray hard enough. But how we need to look at Jesus and how He endured. I mean, how many times was that verb in there? How He embraced the process, living according to the will of God. Jesus didn't circumvent God's will and take these shortcuts and cut these corners towards towards living this way. And so how we need the discernment of God, how we need to pray for that, to know the difference between God's hand on something or whether it's Satan's trap. What did Paul pray for in Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10? And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent. See, we're, we're called to be God's servant, operating within God's will, in God's ways, in God's timing. When we need to cry out to God for wisdom, cry out to God for discernment, to choose what is right, even though it seems so obvious. Back into 1 Samuel, chapter 24, verse 8. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of, the, of your robe in my hand, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients say, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. Here we see the hope that David has in the Lord that that God is going to be his avenger, that God is going to be his judge. And David has this hope that God will take vengeance on his behalf, that he will judge on his behalf. And David didn't have to jump on this golden opportunity to kill Saul because he placed the matter into God's hands. And did you notice that he didn't ask anything of Saul? He didn't make Saul make a promise to him that, oh, you better make a promise that you're not going to try to kill me anymore or take an oath or anything like that. He completely placed it in the Lord's hands. And you see what David did in verses 12 and 15? He appealed to the Lord. Right? He committed justice into God's hands. And that's, that's what allowed David to not kill Saul, to, to patiently wait. He totally trusted it in God's hands that God will bring judgment on Saul and so he doesn't have to. So rather taking those matters into his own, own hands and avenging himself, he, he commits the cause to God. And David prays for God to, to judge, for God to take vengeance. Now in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 35 through 36, it reads, Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall, shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand. 
and their doom comes swiftly. For the Lord will vindicate His people and have compassion on His servants when He sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining, bond or free. It's the same verse that's quoted towards the end of Romans chapter 12, verse 19 from Paul. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So it's not that David let Saul off the hook and says, Saul, it's okay. I, I know things have been tough. I, I know. It, it's okay. God, God removing you from the throne and all, I understand. And uh, I, I know you, ca- you came under a lot of stress lately and, and you know, killing all, these, all the priests except the Biather here. You, know, you let him live or he escaped. But I know it's not enough to relieve you from your stress. He didn't do that. He didn't make excuses for Saul. Rather, he tells Saul that you're going to be judged for what you're doing. And he's not going to be the one to pass judgment and take vengeance. He just leaves it to God. God's will. And our hope ultimately is not in ourselves to bring about justice and vengeance, but it's God. For God to judge. For God to take revenge. So how do we go about asking for this? How do we pray for this? We pray for justice. We pray for vengeance. And we do it unapologetically. Just like David. And sometimes... This is all that the oppressed have. I mean, a lot of times the oppressed, they, they can't take action, right? All they can do is, is cry out to God to be their judge, to be their avenger. And we pray that God judge evil people and that He brings His wrath on them. And some of you might be thinking, well, that's not very Christian. That's not very nice or compassionate or kind. How can you just pray for that? That's a terrible thing to pray. Yeah, it is. But our hope is in God to be the judge. Our hope is in God to be the avenger. It's not in ourselves. It comes from God who can wield that judgment, who can wield that vengeance as only He can. It's not praying that you're going to do it. And when we are victims of injustice or we're interceding on the behalf of others, we commit that matter to God. We commit that vengeance to Him and God will take care of it. We don't have to have such a spiteful heart or a hateful heart and act out on it. We can leave it to God who who can do it in a way that He's not going to sin. And our hope for justice and vengeance is ultimately in God to bring it about. And, and, And this is not a small task. This can get pretty intense. I mean, you check out some of these psalms of petition, right? Psalm chapter 54, verse 5. He will return the evil to my enemies in your faithfulness. Put an end to them. Psalm 58, verse 6. O Lord, break the teeth in their mouths. That's pretty awesome. Psalm 139, verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O Lord. These are intense prayers, right? These aren't kind prayers. These seem really harsh. They seem really vindictive. Break their teeth? But it's placing the justice before the Lord. It's placing the vengeance before the Lord because, you know, for us, this is how we think. I'm going to break His teeth. For God, I'm going to break His teeth, God. I'm going to leave this in Your hand. This is what I want to see, but all Yours. We're not the one that will take vengeance, but we're committing our cause to God, right? God will bring deliverance and, and, we'll, leave, and we'll just leave the judgment and the, and the vengeance in God's hands because He can handle it. I don't think we can. 
Right? And sure, it's written in Psalm 139, verse 19, you know, oh, that you may slay the wicked. But read a little further. Go to verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. See, we, we need to leave the judgment, the vengeance in God's hands, who, who can properly wield it, and, and leave it out of our hands because we will abuse it. And you see that vengeance is, is not to be vindictive on our part. Vengeance is God's just judgment upon evil men and women. And we don't make our prayers and judgment of judgment and vengeance. We don't make those in hate. We don't make those in spite or malice. We are to ask God to search us. As verse 23 says, to search us. But if there's, this, there's a situation where we need deliverance or, or we're praying for someone else's deliverance, we can pray that God sets things right and we can commit that matter of judgment and vengeance into the hands of God even though we're mad and we want God to break their teeth. We're like, ah, break their teeth. And God's like, alright, calm down. I'm going to take care of it. I'll take care of it. Right? And here's the principle. If God's afflicted people can't have hope that, that, that God in His justice will set things right, if we don't have that hope, we as His people just don't have any hope at all, do we? If we can't count on God to be the judge, if we can't count on God to take vengeance, if we can't hope that God will intervene and, and make things right, bring about justice, and, and He can't provide a help in time of need, then, then where is that hope? If God can't deliver us from injustice, then we have no hope. But we do, and we can commit it to Him. Why does Psalm chapter 96 have all creation going absolutely crazy and nuts? Just enjoy. It's because God is coming to judge the world in equity, in fairness. A just judge is coming. He's going to make all things right with, with all the people who have been wronged. And we have hope in that. And a day will come when, when justice prevails. It, it seems like people are getting away with evil all the time. But a day will come when the Lord will address the injustice. When the Lord will take vengeance. Verse 16, 1 Samuel. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now, behold, I know that you shall surely be king. And that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me therefore by the Lord that you will not cut off my offspring after me. And that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. Now may we take away a couple lessons from this text. The first one, that, that we have discernment. That we have discernment and wisdom between what is God's providence, what is God's will, and what is temptation. Even though it seems so obvious, and it doesn't seem like a sin, or it doesn't seem like a temptation, but sometimes it is. That we will not fall victim of, of cutting corners in our spiritual life and, and resist temptation. 
And then the second thing, that we as God's servants, that we will ask God for justice, that we will ask God for vengeance, to, to leave that in God's hands, to, to leave justice and vengeance in God's hands who can properly wield that because ultimately He's the only one that can because we will abuse it. So in the midst of this evil, hateful, unbelieving, unjust world, we need to lay all those things in front of God's feet. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for discernment in our lives and we ask for wisdom. We ask, God, that uh, even when things seem, seem so obvious to us that we should act on some certain thing, that we would submit that to you in prayer. That we, we would be able to see kind of the longer-term ramifications of our decisions. That you would give us wisdom in our life. That we wouldn't despise kind of the tough things that are going on in our life because that's precisely what's bringing us to this place of holiness, that we endure through those things. Ask God for patience and for submission to you as we endure through our hardships. And Lord, I also pray that if we have any sort of vengeful heart or, or hate or spite or something against somebody, or even though it's, it's a just thing and that it's against injustice, I pray that we would yield those things to you because only you can properly wield it so that we may not fall into sin, that we wouldn't fall into temptation. In Jesus' name, amen. Now we have uh, communion elements on the aisles here and up front and, and during these next few songs, kind of reflect upon your own heart if, if you do have that spirit of judgment within yourself or that spirit of, of vengefulness against another person. You need to kind of get that cleared up before you come and take those communion elements, the, the cracker there, the symbolizing the Lord's body broken for you, and, and that grape juice there symbolizing the, the blood that Jesus spilled for you on that cross. How he endured that rather than taking that temptation of when the devil offered him the kingdoms. How he endured the shame, the humiliation of the cross, the suffering of the cross and those elements are here before you to take those in remembrance of him until he returns.